We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, and we're going through the whole time he spent ministering on the earth, which was around three years. We're going through those three years in chronological order. And those three years of Jesus' life are documented in four books we find in the Bible that are collectively referred to as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as I mentioned, today we're going to be in chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. It's the night that Jesus is going to be arrested, the day before he's going to be crucified and murdered on the cross for your sins and mine. He has just enjoyed a final meal with his closest friends, his disciples, and they have now left that famous Last Supper and are making their way down one side of the valley in which Jerusalem lies, the Kidron Valley. They are crossing the creek at the bottom close to where the temple would have been, and they are now making their way up the other side toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they're making their way up that side of the hill, Jesus does something extraordinary. He stops, and the disciples are all thinking, what is he gonna do, what is he gonna do? And he prays. But the incredible thing is, he prays to his heavenly Father the way he does when he's on his own in his personal prayer time. Only this time he's allowing his disciples to listen in and to hear how he prays when he's talking directly to his heavenly Father. All of that is found in John chapter 17. It takes up the whole chapter. John Knox, the famous preacher and theologian of old, considered this to be, in his words, the holy of holies of Scripture because it is direct conversation between Jesus the Son and God the Father in heaven. And when he was on his deathbed, John Knox had this chapter read to him over and over and over again. And I think that by the time we reach the end of today's study, it'll be clear why. Last week we began our study of this amazing chapter looking at just the first five verses of what is the real Lord's Prayer because it's the prayer that Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father. And we got to listen in and heard a lot about purpose and meaning and about the work of our lives. If you missed last week, I encourage you to listen to it online. It's going to bless you. This week we're going to continue working our way through this and we're going to finish chapter 17 And we're going to hear some amazing statements and requests made by Jesus. We're going to be especially floored by the love that God has for you and I. You you might think you know that God loves you, but there's going to be a whole other layer to that revealed in our study this evening. And I don't know about you, but I never get tired of hearing that God loves me. I never get tired of hearing that. No words in all the world mean more to me than God loves me. It's the best news that you could ever receive. So let's jump in. We'll begin in verse 6, John chapter 17, verse 6. With your pen in hand, we'll underline these first five words. Jesus says to his heavenly Father, I have manifested your name. I have manifested your name. However your Bible says that, it means I have revealed your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me and they have kept your word. I love how verse six begins. You see, not only did Jesus preach the word, unlock the scriptures, heal the sick, and perform miracles, but he put on skin and bones, human form, and revealed to us what the Father in heaven is like. That's why Jesus could say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And that's why Jesus could say with total honesty to the Father, I have manifested your name. I've revealed you. I've shown them what you're like by the way I've lived my life. And that's the model for you and I. Not to just know the word, not to just have our theology and doctrine straight, but to manifest the name of God, the character of God by the way we live our lives. That's a high calling. But it's our calling nonetheless. So let's put this in perspective. Husbands, does your wife understand the character of God better because she's married to you? Wives, same question about your husband. Fathers, do your children understand the character of God better because of the way you raise them? Same question for you moms. How about your coworkers, your boss, your classmates, your neighbors, your teammates? Do they have a better understanding of what God is like 
because of you? Or do they have a better understanding of the doctrine of human depravity because of you? We want to reveal and manifest the character of God to people. That's your first fill-in. Write this down. We're called to manifest the love and character of God. We're called to help people understand what God is like by the way we live our lives. It's a high calling indeed and one that we certainly cannot fulfill without the grace and power of God flowing through our lives. Jesus goes on in verse 7 and he prays, Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given to me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Now in verse 6, you've got to hang with me here because this is a hard sentence. Jesus uses the Greek word in verse 6, logos, when he says the word, word. Are you with me? When Jesus says the word, word, it's the Greek word logos in verse 6. Now logos can refer to Jesus himself, as we see in John chapter 1. But here in chapter 17, logos is referring to the eternal and unchanging word of God, the scriptures. Here in verse 8, Jesus uses the word words. And that there is the Greek word rhema. Rhema, it's a different word. Rhema refers to a specific word from God for a specific moment. For example, if the Holy Spirit gives someone a word of knowledge, a word of prophecy, a word of encouragement for a specific person at a specific time, that would be a rhema word from God. That's an active word for a specific place, time, and moment. So in verse 8, Jesus is saying that he has shared with his disciples every word that the Father prompted him to share moment by moment. In other words, Father, every time you told me to say something to Peter, to John, to James, I said it exactly the way you told me to. You see, Jesus gave his disciples both. He gave them the logos, the scriptures, the word of God, but he also gave them the rhema, those in-the-moment words that come from the Holy Spirit. And as I was preparing this, I was just thinking, especially as a parent, but this applies to all relationships. As a parent, we need to give our children the logos, the word of God, and I hope we're doing that. But we also need to be giving them the rhema, those words that come from the Holy Spirit and are for specific moments. Those moments where you just know what my kid needs right now is not, well, it says in Romans chapter 8 this. They might already know that, but they need a specific word from God for that moment to remind them of what the Logos says, but it needs to be a rhema word for that moment. Because sometimes the issue is not that a person doesn't know what the word of God says. You might be going through a time of difficulty and someone will say, hey, Romans 8:28 says God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And you might know that. You might not be down in the dumps because you've forgotten what Romans 8.28 says. But you need a rhema word from God, a specific word from God for that moment to break through this depression that you're in. And sometimes our kids are the same way. And we need God's wisdom to know whether a logos or a rhema word is needed. And that's true of all relationships. How many of you know that if you're arguing with your spouse, that may not be the time to say, well, lest we forget that in Ezekiel it says, that may not be the time and the place. You need a rhema word because you might be in one of those moments where you're like, I don't know what to say. God, I need you to help me out right now. But I think the bigger reason we need to be careful is because it's so easy to fall into legalism by just quoting scripture at people. And here's why. Because I can do that without caring about them. And I can do that while being disconnected from God. You know, if I haven't been walking with the Lord, if I haven't been listening to the Holy Spirit for a while, or even in that interaction, I don't just magically forget all the scripture I have memorized. I still remember it. And so the problem is that sometimes I can still quote an applicable verse to you, but I might be disconnected from the Lord. 
And my heart might not be caring for you at all in that moment. And that legalism can creep in. But the thing about a rhema word from God is you can't even get it unless you're connected to God in that moment. Unless you're saying, Lord, I need you to speak right now. I need you to guide my words. I need you to let me know what to say. And God might give you a verse. That might be the rhema word. Or it might be a sentence, an encouragement, or something specific. So different applications for different moments and different times. But especially as a church that loves the word of God, we need to make sure that even when we're quoting the Logos, it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's because he's telling us to do it and he's bringing us to mind. Not that we're just swinging our giant sword of the Bible and lopping people's heads off left, right, and center. We want the right word for the right moment. And Jesus was able to say to the Father, I did that perfectly. Verse 9, he says, I pray for them, his disciples. Now notice this. This is really interesting. Jesus Christ says, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Did you catch that? I do not pray for the world. This verse is a reminder that before we're saved by God's grace, we're at war with him. Romans 5.10 says that we're enemies of God before we come to him. It's not like he likes us, but we're just not quite in the club before we're saved. We've lined up against God. That's the side that we've chosen before we choose to receive him into our lives. And Jesus right here is not praying for everybody. He's praying for those who belong to him and those who will belong to him. Now Jesus wants everyone to be in relationship with God. He wants everyone to experience eternity in heaven with him. But he's not praying for those who will never accept him. He's praying for those who have and those who will. Verse 10, Jesus prays, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, his disciples. And I come to you, Holy Father, underline this, keep through your name those whom you have given to me. Keep through your name those whom you have given to me, that they may be one as we are. Jesus prays, Father, keep my disciples, my followers, in relationship with you. Keep them in relationship with you the same way that I am in relationship with you. Now, would you agree with me that if you're in relationship with the Father, if your standing with the Father is the same as Jesus's, would you agree that you're probably saved? I, I think that would qualify, right? Absolutely. So I want you to notice this, though, logically here. Based on Jesus' prayer, who is the one keeping us in relationship with God? Who is the one keeping us saved? It's God himself. The Father is keeping us saved. You see, Jesus doesn't pray, Father, help them to keep their salvation. He doesn't pray, help them not to lose it. Help them to maintain it. No, Jesus prays, and I quote, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. You see, you can't save yourself. You can't earn your salvation, and you can't maintain your salvation either. You can't keep yourself saved. The Lord didn't say, I'm going to save you, and then let's see how you do. Some of you will make it. Some of you won't. That's not what happened. Jesus saved us and the Father keeps us. Praise God for that. Write this down. Our salvation was won by Jesus and is secured by the Father. Our salvation is won by Jesus and is secured by the Father. Verse 12, Jesus keeps praying and he says, while I was with them, his disciples, in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. That means none of them is destroyed, except the son of perdition. That means the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. See, during the three years he was ministering on the earth, 
Jesus kept his disciples in relationship with God because he was literally there to talk with them and to keep them on track. One of them was getting off track. He could literally lean over, smack him on the back of the head and be like, you're not on the right track, Peter. This is where you need to go. Judas Iscariot was the exception in the sense that he was never saved. It's not that Judas was the exception because God had him and then lost him or because Judas was saved and then lost his salvation. Judas never had his salvation in the first place. And we know that because it was prophesied hundreds of years in advance in places like Zechariah 11, Psalm 41, and is mentioned in John 6 and Act 1. The idea behind what Jesus is praying is, Father, while my disciples were in my care, I didn't lose one of them. Now that I'm getting ready to return to you in heaven, I'm placing them in your care, and I'm asking you to keep them in the same way. The same way that I kept them when I was with them on the earth, Father, I'm asking you to keep them now that I'm going to return to you in heaven. Why does Jesus ask his Father to keep his followers? Because apparently, we don't have the ability to keep ourselves. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have asked his Father to do it for us. And what's the standard for believers being kept? What's the standard that Jesus set and asked his Father to keep when it comes to our salvation? I quote, this is the standard. None of them is lost. None of them is lost. We call that eternal security. Once you're saved, you're saved forever. Not because of what you do, but because your salvation is maintained by God and not by you. So make a note of this. Jesus' standard of being kept is none of them is lost. That was his quote. None of them is lost. That's the standard. None of them is lost. Verse 13, but now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is praying, Father, I'm asking you for these things because I want my disciples to have the same joy that I have right now, knowing that I'm going to be returning to heaven, returning to you, where I'll enjoy our relationship and glory. Jesus is praying, I want my disciples to have that same level of joy in their lives. It blows me away that when, when Jesus is about to go to the cross facing suffering and torture and death, this is what is on the mind of Jesus. He's saying, Father, I can't wait to be back with you in heaven. It fills me with joy. But Father, here's what I want. Here's what's on my heart right now. I want those who love me to experience that same joy right now. I want their hearts to be filled with the joy of knowing they're going to be with me in heaven one day. Jesus is just, he's just wonderful in his character, in his thought process, in his love for us. He, he loves us in a way that, that's so above and beyond. I don't have any points of comparison for it. Verse 14, underline this first phrase here. Jesus says, I have given them your word. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We talked about this a few studies back in this series. There are ultimately only two forces at play in the world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And the world is currently under the sway and control of Satan with some limitations put in place by God. And so the reason the world system hates Christians is ultimately because we belong to Jesus and the world belongs to Satan. It really is that simple. And so it's tragic when the church says, well, maybe we should try doing more nice things. Maybe then the world will like us. That's not the issue. The issue is that the world is under the sway of Satan and the church belongs to Jesus. And those are diametrically opposed forces. In fact, it's the reason the world hated Jesus according to Jesus. And here in verse 14, Jesus is literally telling his heavenly Father, Father, I've given them your word. And you know what the evidence of that is, Father? The world hates them just the same way as it hated me. Because I'm not of the world, and now neither are they. Verse 15, 
Jesus says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that, and then underline this, you should keep them from the evil one. You should keep them from the evil one. Now, I have to believe that when Jesus asks the Father for something, it carries some weight. And I have to believe that when Jesus asks his heavenly Father for something, the Father says, yes. And I don't actually base that assumption on the fact that Jesus is the Father's only begotten Son. I base that fact on the knowledge that Jesus is in perfect unity with the Father. And so Jesus is only going to be asking for things that are on the Father's heart as well. So when Jesus prays, keep them from the evil one, I believe the Father says yes. But this can't be referring to trouble or, or difficulties or suffering or persecution or even martyrdom, dying for your faith, because all those things would happen to the church from pretty much day one when the church was born in 32 AD in Acts chapter 2. So when Jesus prays, keep them from the evil one, I have to conclude that Jesus is referring to believers being overcome by Satan, because that's the request that we see being answered throughout the history of the church. We see believers refusing to back down on their faith in the face of torture and death. We see believers singing worship songs as they face the sword, even today. We see believers whose love for Jesus is not diminished, but rather empowered in the face of death. And we see a church that's not overcome by the evil one, just as Jesus prayed. Verse 16, they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world sanctify them, that means sanctify them apart, set them apart by your truth. And then now underline this, your word is truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Once again, we hear Jesus being very clear about what it means to belong to him. It means you don't belong to the world. It means you don't belong to the world. It means you're never gonna truly fit in and feel fully at home in the world. And in fact, Jesus' prayer to the Father is that the Father would keep us from getting swept up in the flow in the current of the world culture around us. And Jesus tells us here, that the way the Father is going to keep our perspective on heaven is through the Word of God. That's how we're going to be able to determine what's of God and what's of the world. That's why for the Christian, we have to get this one question ingrained in our minds as our first response to everything. Here's the question. What does the Word of God say? What does the Word of God say? Not what do I feel? Not what has been my experience. Not what do you think is best. But what does the word of God say? So make a note of this. God uses his word to keep us sanctified. To keep us set apart for him. God uses his word to keep us set apart for him. In those moments where we're trying to figure out, oh, oh man, is this a right thing or a wrong thing? Is this something I should be doing as a believer or not? Should I be involved in this or not? When we're trying to discern how to live as followers of Jesus in our world's culture, the word of God is the thing that's gonna help us discern what the truth is. You know, many of the cultural issues that, that Christians wrestle with in modern Christianity have very, very simple answers. It just seems like they're complicated because many of us as believers are not willing to ask the simple question, what does the word of God say? There are church conferences and meetings and huge dialogues that happen around cultural issues and how the church should deal with them. And much of the time, none of that needs to happen. That's all happening because no one wants to ask the question, what does the word of God say? Most of the time, the word of God makes the issue crystal clear. And as we mature as believers, we need to remember that wisdom is not reaching the place where you no longer need to reference the word of God. 
Wisdom is reaching the place where you know God's word so well, you reach the place where it's so deeply embedded in your spirit that you're able to apply it rightly to every situation. We see the unique position we're in as believers when Jesus prays they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world, but then he also prays, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So we're not of the world, but we've been sent into the world. The solution to remaining sanctified, set apart for God, is not withdrawing from the world and forming some sort of commune or going to live in a monastery somewhere, although it's tempting because of current real estate prices. We're not supposed to do that. We've been sent into the world by Jesus. And the solution is realizing that, yeah, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. This isn't our home. We're in the world because we've been sent there on assignment by Jesus. And we haven't been sent into the world to become part of it, to blend in and look exactly like it. We've been sent into the world as salt and light to be witnesses for Jesus in it. And if you're thinking, Jeff, that's a hard line to walk. That's a balancing act that's very difficult. You are absolutely right. It's very difficult. But the solution is being in the Word of God. It's always gonna bring clarity to our lives and keep us on track because the Word of God always reminds us, right, right, this is not my home. Heaven is my home. I belong to Jesus, I'm a citizen of heaven. And it reminds us that our purpose in living is to bring glory to God. And if you look at verse 17, who's the one ultimately doing the sanctifying? Who's the one that Jesus asks to sanctify us through God's word? It's the Father, again. We can't even sanctify ourselves. We can't set ourselves apart. It's the Father who sanctifies us through the word of God. Verse 20, Jesus prays, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I, he's talking about us, the future church. Everyone who's gonna come to believe in Jesus because of the church that would be started through the disciples. Verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me. Get this, this is huge. This is mind-blowing as a statement. Verse 22, the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, and they may be perfect in one. This is a fairly well-known passage in scripture that's often used to talk about the subject of unity within the church, the church uppercase C, the global church, all believers. But when you examine this text closely, I think you'll come to the conclusion that It's saying that unity is meant to exist among believers not because we all get along or agree on everything. Unity among believers is meant to be the result of the fact that we all share Jesus in common. It's not supposed to be like, oh, we're unified because we get along. It's supposed to be, no, we both have Jesus in common and that's what our connection is. It's not because we do everything the same way or have the same views about everything. Our unity is built on the fact that Jesus is at the center. So when a church, a quote unquote church says, Jesus isn't the only way to heaven, God doesn't expect us to be in unity with them just because they say they're a church because we don't have Jesus in common if they're saying that he's not the only way to heaven. When a church says, hey, not everything in the Bible is true and we can update some theology to to fit today's culture. God doesn't expect us to be in unity with them because we don't have Jesus in common. They're following another Jesus. That's what the Bible calls it. But when a church says, hey, Jesus was God in the flesh. He's the son of God. He's the only way to be saved. Salvation is by grace alone. Hey, Jesus does expect us to be in unity with that group of believers because we have Jesus in common. Even If that group of believers swings from the rafters and runs around the auditorium in worship doing handstands and waving flags, if we have Jesus in common, we're in unity. Even if they believe that the Holy Spirit will not come to church unless he can sit in a pew, 
and that we should only read the King James Bible because that's the version Jesus used, we should still find ourselves in unity if we agree on the essentials. Even if all of their sermon series are based after movies and TVs with the name changed in a really cheesy way to make it about something about Christian living, we're still in Christian unity if we're on the same page that Jesus is the only way to be saved. The goal is not to be in unity with everyone who claims to be a Christian. My goodness, do we need to know that in today's world. The goal is to be in unity with everyone who is saved and really belongs to Jesus. One of my favorite stories about unity in the church comes from the 1740s. England was in the midst of a historically amazing revival known as the Great Awakening. And at the center of the Great Awakening were two preachers named John Wesley and George Whitfield. And they were seeing countless people in England turn to Jesus, give their lives to Jesus through their preaching ministries. But they began to have some disagreements about theology about points of doctrine, and it reached the level where they were taking out full-page newspaper ads explaining why the other's doctrine was in error. And this was like the hottest topic of the day, and people were eating it up. They were riveted by these disagreements. So one day a journalist asked George Whitfield, do you expect to see John Wesley in heaven? And George Whitfield famously replied, No, I don't, for John Wesley will be so close to the throne of God and I so far back that I will not see him. In 1770, the year of Whitfield's death, he wrote to Charles Wesley, John's brother, and called him my very dear old friend and described John as your honored brother. And to each of them he bequeathed a a mourning ring Quote, in token of my indissoluble union with them in heart and Christian affection, notwithstanding our difference in judgment about some particular points of doctrine. And on Whitfield's death, Charles penned a noble eulogy, and at Whitfield's request, his funeral sermon was preached by none other than John Wesley. That's what Christian unity looks like. It doesn't mean we agree about everything, but it means that when we know we have Jesus in common, hey, listen, we're going to the same place, heaven, and we're taking the same path to get there, Jesus. And so we have unity even if we don't agree about everything. There are many flavors in the Christian family. I mean, obviously ours is best. We know that. But while others may look and sound a little bit different, if Jesus is at the center... Man, we're in unity and we are family. So make a note of this. Christian unity is not based on being able to agree on everything, but rather a shared oneness with Jesus. Christian unity is not based on being able to agree on everything, but rather a shared oneness with Jesus. And then Jesus goes on and he prays, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and then underline this because this is incredible, and have loved them as you have loved me. If you don't find that statement staggering, you're not paying attention. The Father has loved and continues to love you and I the same way as much as he loves his only begotten son, Jesus. There's nothing I can add to that statement to make it more wonderful than it already is. There's nothing I can add. The Father loves us the same way he loves Jesus. Uh, That's incredible, it's incredible. And one other little note about how the Father loves Jesus. In the very next verse, Jesus will pray to the Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And if the Father loves us the same way he loves Jesus, that means the Father has loved you and I before the foundation of the world, before anything existed, before the universe came to be, before there was time and space, the Father knew everything about you and the life you would live, and before any of that was created, He loved you. He loved you. So you don't ever have to worry that God's love for you is gonna change. 
because it wasn't an impulsive decision and it wasn't a recent decision either. It was made before the world was ever created and it was made with full knowledge, everything about you. Write this down. The Father loves us the same way he loves Jesus. The Father loves us the same way he loves Jesus. That, that news is, is so good. It's, it, it's incredible. Verse 24, Father, underline this sentence, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. That statement blows me away as well. He wants me to be with him in heaven. He wants to reveal to me who he really is in all his glory in heaven. And when we get to listen, don't forget, we're listening to Jesus' personal prayers and we're hearing him share with his father the things that he most wants before he goes to the cross. And speaking of us, you and I, what's on Jesus' heart is, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Man, he loves us. He loves us. He genuinely, deeply loves us. Not in a, well, I created you so I guess you're my problem kind of way. He loves us in a, I want to spend eternity with you and share everything I have with you kind of way. That's incredible. He loves us. Write this down. Jesus is looking forward to revealing heaven and his glory to us. He's looking forward to it. Verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Why is Jesus the only way to God? Because you can only get to God through God. Only God can get you to God. And Jesus credits his disciples for recognizing that he was sent by the Father. Verse 26, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, I don't want to pretend that what I'm about to explain, I can explain perfectly because I can't even wrap my head around it fully. But I want to encourage you to really look at what Jesus prays in that last line. He says that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. When you read through this whole chapter that ends so perfectly with that last statement by Jesus, when, when you really look at what Jesus is literally praying, it will become shockingly clear that we've been invited into relationship with God on a much deeper and much more profound level than we realize. Over and over, Jesus talks about things in this chapter like how the Father loves us the same way he loves him. Like how the same love that the Father loves him with is going to be in us like how we are in Jesus the way that he is in the Father. And while I still don't know exactly how it's going to work, the idea is that when we get to heaven, there won't be the church, you and I, who is like really, really good friends with God, and then the Trinity, which is like super best friends. If you actually look at what is said by Jesus in this chapter, the idea from the words of Jesus himself is that we're going to be in relationship with God the way that Jesus is in relationship with the Father, which is a mind-exploding thought. But that's what we see. We see that the Father loves us the same way he loves Jesus. We see Jesus saying that the love of the Father which is in him is going to also be in us. That Jesus is going to be in us as he is in the Father. Over and over again we hear these kind of incredible statements. Look back at verses 22 and 23 again. Jesus says, and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. So not that we may be one with each other, but that we may be one as Jesus is one with the Father. I'm not blaspheming. That's what it says. I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one. The idea is that if we were to all get to heaven and there's Jesus and the Father and us, 
It would be a little awkward right now because we would be a little bit underdressed, to say the least. You see, they're shining and they're illuminating. There's like angels flying around them and there's rainbows shooting all over the, fla- the place. And we're like in flip-flop shorts and t-shirts and we're like, hey guys, what do you want to talk about? So what has Jesus done for his church? I'm going to let Jesus speak for himself. This is what Jesus has done for his church. Quote, the glory which you gave me, the glory which the Father gave to Jesus, Jesus says, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. See, we don't need the glory of Jesus to be united with each other and to get along. We need grace, we need peace, but we we don't need glory to do that. The translation is that Jesus has dressed us appropriately for the party of heaven. He's given us his glory so that we, when we arrive in heaven, we're gonna be glorified to such a degree that we're gonna fit right in and enjoy a relationship with God the same way that Jesus enjoys his relationship with his Father. That's what John 17 says. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in Romans 8, it's on your outlines, when he said, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and and underline this, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be, what? Glorified together, not together with each other, together with Christ. Christ is the subject of the sentence there. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed where? In us, in us. And then later on in that same chapter, Paul writes, for whom he, God the Father, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among, and then underline, many brethren. Moreover, Whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Glorified. If we're going to be able to handle the glory of heaven, I mean just survive it. If we're going to be able to handle the glory of God, if we're going to be able to do what the Bible says we're going to do, which is actually see Jesus, this is going to need an upgrade. And so the Lord Jesus has shared his glory with each of us. When we get to heaven, we'll receive it so that we will have the capacity in eternity to enjoy a relationship with God on a level we cannot even fathom. We cannot even fathom. God is too good. He's too good. And I want to encourage you. If you're hearing this, and I get it, if you're like, that doesn't sound right. That sounds off. Let me encourage you, go read this chapter this week, study it, dive into it, look at the statements Jesus is making, and I think you'll come to the same conclusion that while we don't know exactly how it's going to work, what God has planned for us in heaven is way beyond, way beyond anything we can imagine. I'm not talking about the stuff, I'm talking about the relationship that we're going to be in with the Lord in heaven is far beyond our wildest imaginations. Write a note of this. Jesus will share his glory with us so that we will have the capacity to enjoy eternity in relationship with God on the deepest of levels. Jesus will share his glory with us so that we will have the capacity to enjoy eternity in relationship with God on the deepest of levels. God is the one who saves us. God is the one who keeps us. I don't know about you, but that's good news for me. I'm glad this salvation thing doesn't rest on me. And not only did Jesus pray for you back then, but he's praying for you right now. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives, and then underline this, to make intercession for them. This is not just a nice verse, really get this. Jesus is praying for you right now. 
He is praying for you until the day you arrive in his presence. He is praying for you that the Father would keep you, sustain you, and reveal truth to you through the word of God. You are not the one keeping yourself in God's family. You are not the one holding that relationship together. It's Jesus praying and the Father keeping. So you're good. You're good. You're going to make it. But you know what else? So are those loved ones in your life who belong to Jesus as well. They're going to make it too. They're good too. Your spouse, your kids, your extended family, they're also good. You know, I got six kids and we're just starting to enter those teen years. This is, this is a good time right now. All my kids love the Lord. They're following Jesus. But they're on this threshold of entering the years where the world just begins to work overtime, all the time, to derail their faith, to get their eyes off Jesus, to pull them off track. And the more you look around the world, when I look around the world and just compare it to what my childhood was like, it is so easy as a parent to just say, man, what, what chance do my kids have in today's world of coming out the other side loving Jesus? The stuff that's already in our homes through the internet, what, what chance do my kids have? And here's the answer. Jesus is praying for them. Jesus is praying for them. That's my hope. That's my peace because I know that Jesus prays with a love that never gets tired and a love that never gives up. Do you remember back in Luke 22 when Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Simon, Simon. Remember what Jesus says? He says, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. In other words, Peter, Satan wants to tear you down. He wants to grind you up. He wants to tear you apart. He wants to bring the whole house down on you. But, and let me ask you, how grateful do you think Peter was that there was a but following that sentence? He was glad there was a but. But, I have trained you, so you're going to do great? Is that what Jesus said? Did Jesus say, but I think you've got the strength to handle it? Is that what Jesus said? Or did Jesus say, but if you really belong to me, you'll pass this test. None of the above. None of the above. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, translation, you will return to me. You're going to make it through this. Strengthen your brethren. Strengthen your brothers. What's your hope for your faith and the faith of every believer you know? This is your hope. Jesus has prayed for you. Jesus is praying for you. And when the next storm rolls in, Jesus will be praying for you then too. You're not the one holding your faith together. You're not the one holding your spouse or your children's faith together. God is the one doing that. And I don't know if this applies to any situation you're in right now, but if it does, there is freedom in knowing that. Incredible freedom. Because it means when you pray, you don't need to get the words just right. Jesus is taking care of that. When you pray, you don't need to make sure you cover everything. Jesus is the one taking care of that. There's freedom to be, to be tired to be exhausted, there's freedom to just be able to groan and say, Lord, you know, you know. Thank you that you know it all and you know what's needed. There's freedom to just go, thank you that you're on it. Because sometimes that's all you can muster. There's freedom to rest and remember that even though your mind is screaming, what are we going to do? Jesus knew about this situation before the world was even made. And he was probably praying about it before you or they were even born. And then I want to remind every single one of us 
that as incredible and unbelievable as it may seem, Jesus himself tells us that the Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus. And I often look at other believers and I'm like, I I get why you love them. I get why you love him or her. But me? I don't get it. I don't get it. And yet that verse is true for me too and it's true for you as well. Father loves us the same way he loves Jesus and Jesus can't wait to share his glory and heaven with you and I. Church, you need to know your God loves you. Man, he loves you. He even likes you. He loves you. He loves you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much that you love us in a way that defies description. It's hard to even wrap our minds around. You love us the same way, to the same degree that you love your son, Jesus. And when you adopted us into your family as sons and daughters, you didn't give us second class status. But you've welcomed us into your family, into a relationship the same way that you enjoy a relationship with your son, Jesus. And we can't wait to be able to experience that relationship in your presence in heaven one day. It's gonna be amazing. Thank you for bringing us into your family. And Jesus, thank you that you are praying for us right now. Thank you that you're praying for those we love who we know belong to you. Thank you that you're holding us together and you're holding them together. Thank you that you're the one who saved us. And your Father is the one who's going to make sure that we make it. Thank you that you love us, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.